These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Yes, good people of the internet. How are we doing out there from sunny San Diego? I'm Greg Carlwood, and it's a confusing thing just how numb, passive, ignorant, and uncurious people tend to be today. Rarely pondering the deeper questions of what human life even is, yet being able to rattle off a minutia of meaningless NFL statistics. Spending their entire lifetime in baseline consciousness, total mind capture, without any sense of adventure or exploration between the daily grind and the nightly news. Knowing we have mysterious monolithic sites and pyramids from an ancient age that puzzle the professionals even today, but assuming there must not be much more to know as to not interfere with their detective work as to who might be revealed as the next masked singer. It's as if a string of pointless, redundant distractions and stressful, soulless obligations keep the majority of the herd from doing anything but trying to get through the next day. But the work and life story of today's guest, Howdy Mikoski, can provide the best medicine for the mundane, mental, mind rut many might be experiencing, because he found himself depressed and unfulfilled at the ripe old age of 28. But after having come across a program that took a deeper dive into the Great Pyramids, he decided to dedicate his energy to studying the ancient world. And a deeper examination of Egypt spiraled out into time spent with a Korean Zen monk, Native American medicine men, a doctor of medical Qigong, herbalists, and alchemists. He spent his time traveling to the locations he studied and chronicled his work in his first book, The Power of Then, Revealing Egypt's Lost Wisdom. At 36, he fell into a canyon in western Canada and had a near-death experience that revealed the false covering of oneself and of reality, which led him to study Gnostic and Hermetic teachings and explore the challenges of dealing with an awakening, which came to be put in the pages of his second book, Falling for Truth, as well as inspiring his newest book, which certainly kicked it up a level, Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. But throughout his travels and examinations, Howdy started to see a lot of holes in the historic narrative and conventional timeline, from Gothic cathedrals and the Knights Templar to exotic energy technologies and the World's Fairs, much of which is in his book Exposing the Expositions. 
You can find him getting into all this stuff and more on his YouTube channel, Howdy Mikoski Talks, as well as his website, EgyptianWisdomReveal.com, and I am psyched to get into it. The dedicated deep diver, exposition, exposer, and death trap detective. Howdy, welcome to the higher side. It is good to be here, and that sounds like you know me better than I know myself. <laughs> I tried. I try to be informed. And this is going to be great because your work hits on several high notes in the alternative research world that I love to talk about. And it might be the first interview to come out of a voicemail that you left me, which we generally use for audience insights. But it seems that we both have had some mutual fans try to get us together. And I'm glad we're here. I also think your story is so important. Depressed at 28 much around the same time I started this show as a desperate attempt to bring something fulfilling into my life. But you dedicated yourself to a study of your interests. You traveled to those places. You formed relationships with some really interesting people. And now you're putting out your fourth book and have tens of thousands of people following your work. And it seems like you really did forge a self-directed path. And I think that's something many people could learn from. Thanks. It's been a very, in one sense, rewarding 25 years or so. And it's been a very challenging 25 years, of course. And we can talk about both sides of it. There's been a lot of, yeah, a lot of pain along with a lot of the joys. And where would you like to start? Where would you like to begin the my sharing with you? Sure. Well, I thought before we got into the latest book, I hoped we could talk about some of the work you've done along the way. When you started studying ancient Egypt, what were some of the first real mind blowers that made you dive in to such a degree that you wrote a whole book on it? Well, of course, I, I grew up as sort of a pretty simplistic, normal person. I grew up as a hockey player in Canada, semi-stand-up comedian. I was a stand-up comedian for 12 years. Most people don't know that. And Love that. Yeah, I had some difficult tragedies, though, early in my life. My father was a psychopath and uh, stole all my money just as I was going into my last year of university and pretty much made it very, very difficult to finish my university degree. I did. I came out with a history degree, but it was very tough. Yeah. And then just after university ended, my ex-girlfriend was murdered. And the combination of these two experiences on me, it started at the beginning of sending me into a very depressed spiral. But it was a depressed spiral trying to answer questions that I was realizing that the way the world had been presented to me, which was how you were supposed to live, didn't actually match the experiences now of the trauma in the world. So I was already in this turmoil. And when I reached the height of my depression in early 1997, and I was actually at the point of wanting to kill myself, I just, mm. I, I couldn't think of a good way to do it that wouldn't be messy for the person having to find it. Wow. And I was in this state, it was right around my birthday, and a television program came on, a Nova Pyramid Building program. And it was like instantaneous, almost like a universal setup, if you can put it that way. And it was like, I knew that's what I had to put my focus on. There was a secret in ancient Egypt, and I had to go track it down, not so much necessarily to fix the world or heal the world, but I just needed to know it for myself. And I got really lucky at the beginning because while I had a history degree, I didn't have an archaeological background. So I, I was free to explore. And one of the first books I happened to take out of the library was John Anthony West's Serpent in the Sky. Mm. And as soon as I read Serpent in the Sky, which put me into Schwaller de Lubitz's ideas around the temples of Karnak and Luxor, it, it was 
that in itself was the immediate mind-blowing experience. It showed me that it's obvious the standard story that archaeology and Egyptology had was incorrect. This was further, of course, realized once I got to Giza and to Dashur and to Abu Sir, etc., and could see the stones and see the cuts and see the carving and see the, the quality of the work that is impossible with the supposed stone tool and copper tools. And that's where it sort of began, the combination of a whole new potential way of seeing the ancient world combined with once you start seeing the actual pieces that are on the ground still existing, it starts moving you in a new direction. And that's what I tried to do in the research then. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. One thing I've pulled out of previous conversations where you talked about this a little bit is you had said that you were told what's below the geezer plateau is more exciting and important than what's on the surface. And I'm always intrigued by the wild stuff we find underground. And it seems to be no exception in the uh, Giza Plateau, huh? No, that knows some two stories. One was a gentleman that I met, sort of like might call him a local keeper of knowledge, who on the first day I was ever at the Giza Plateau, we made a, a deal and he took me into underground caverns all throughout the plateau, sort of more between the Sphinx and the Khafre Pyramid. So in that area is these very deep, long shafts. It was very difficult to go down. And there was smaller underground temples that he showed me. But he was very clear that this is only a minor piece of it, and I can't show you much more. This is all that I can show you of it. Okay. Fast forward to my next trip. And I was walking kind of in the same area. I was going a little bit further. And there were two soldiers standing there which is very rare. You never see soldiers on the Giza Plateau. But I, I know how to talk to no matter who it is on the plateau and what the, I've learned some Arabic and I know what to say to not have people cause me any problems while I'm there. And as soon as I got a, bit, a little closer, they pulled up rifles and pointed them at me and made it very clear I better back off. When I got to Luxor and talked to a friend of mine down there who, who has quite a good knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes in, in Cairo, told me that it was his understanding that I had walked into the exact same time that the members of the government were down in a shaft on the Giza Plateau and claiming to have found a time travel device hmm. that the ancient Egyptians had, or, or the, what we call the pre-Egyptians had. And what was going on, apparently, I guess, right at that moment when I was there, is they were trying to make a decision. Do they try to test the device in the place where it is, i.e. not move it, or do they try to move it? to the Cairo Museum or some other safe place where they access it somewhere else. And they were having this big discussion on should they move this time travel device or not. And given the experience I had on the plateau and how strange the whole day was, I'm leaning to that was probably a very true piece of information I got. <laughs> wow. Well, we are in it now. It doesn't get much stranger than that. But the idea that there's a lot of stuff beneath the Giza Plateau and that you were able to talk your way into seeing some of it jives with what I've heard from your stories looking into Gothic cathedrals across Europe, that if you approach people the right way, come in with the right energy, sometimes they'll take you to see things. And you've seen the basement of old cathedrals under the crypts, and you've said that typically these cathedrals were all built on previous temples, temples of Isis and Diana. And it seems like you've gotten a pretty good look at some of that stuff too, right? As good as I think somebody who's not 
completely interconnected with the system can get. And and yeah, it's a combination, I guess, of asking the right way. And it's also being confident to ask. A lot of times doors will open to you, but so many people are just afraid to ask that question. And I know that when I'm on the search, it's just ask. If I get rejected, fine, I get rejected, but don't walk away saying, I wished I had asked, I wished I had checked, I wished I had gone there. And when you get down to some of these cathedrals, unfortunately, I couldn't get down in Chartres. I tried really hard when I was in Chartres, but I couldn't get down there. But in some of the other European cathedrals, when you're in the basement, you'll still often have the, you call them a sarcophagus box, but it's more like a, a recapitulation or an energy box, right? It's a place of retuning your, your energy frequency. Those are still down there. Columns are still down there. Parts of the temple still remain. And once you get below floor level in some of these places, you're actually overcome with a pretty heavy duty energy. And when it comes to Europe itself, the only other place that I've found with as strong energy as in a couple of the cathedrals I've been in, in those basements, is, is uh, Avebury in England. Avebury is another place that I was literally, my legs were on fire when I was there as I was moving, because most people don't realize that Avebury is actually sent out like a giant serpent on the ground. It's like the Kundalini serpent, similar to what you have in the United States at Serpent Mound in Ohio. And I walked the whole thing. And as I'd walked in, finally made it into the main circle. Yeah, my legs were on fire. They were actually burning from the kind of energy that was there. And these are reminders to me that whatever the ancients were doing, and we can't be fully sure what they were doing. It's personal speculation, personal thesis. You're like, I have a thesis myself, but that doesn't mean it's true. And nobody should believe what someone suggests the ancients were doing. All we can do is tap into some of what's there and get a sense of it. And without doubt, the energetic structures of these ancient sites, even today, thousands of years after their use, maybe tens of thousands of years after their use, are still that strong that they can, like, like literally, if I thought if I stood still, I'm going to burn up. That's how much energy was at Avebury. And then, like I'm sure you've heard in the other interviews, I go to Stonehenge and there's nothing. Hmm. <laughs> curious, curious. Energy and timelines, I mean, those are major themes of the day. And I wanted to Fast forward to this part of the story where you write on your about page that following a study trip to Florence, new information came to light of the lies of modern history. And this is really interesting because when you were looking at these cathedrals, I've heard you say that you started looking at them as energy structures. And I've heard you say that when you take religion out of it, you're looking at a machine which is very provocative. Elaborate on this part of your work for us and some of these lies of modern history that you uncovered through this process. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to spend the time with the Zen monk who was a great teacher for me and fabulous wild stories from him. The medicine men were different kind of teachers, taught me very different kinds of things. And I took a lot of that with me to the ancient sites. I know for sure I couldn't have tapped, might say tapped in or seen what I've, I've managed to see at some of these sites. I, I've had experiences of walls changing, disappearing, amazing experiences, but it's linked to who I was lucky enough to meet 25 years ago. And they were kind enough to spend their time with me and teach me some. So I, I was working at all, whether it be Teotihuacan or Palenque in Mexico, whether it be these sites in Egypt, sites through Europe. It was finding these energy structures, finding that the way they were built was generating, a, you might say, a particular charge. And I began getting the sense that 
and I hadn't had this for a long time. It was maybe around 2018 that I started recognizing that the cathedrals themselves, these great Gothic cathedrals, are so similar to the temple layouts of Karnak and Luxor. And so I wanted to go and now experience them the way I would an ancient temple. So go to them a little differently. And I, the best example of it was in a, in a city called Nantes in the west part of France on the coast. And they have a cathedral there called the Cathedral of St. Nicholas, if you ever get a chance to go. The main one that caught fire a few years ago is in the middle of town. That's what get most of the tourists. This one gets almost no tourists. Fabulous, fabulous cathedral. And I stood underneath the main dome and I could feel like literally a bolt of energy was coming directly down from the dome right under me. And I could kind of follow it. I could watch it move. And I don't remember what the names are of the aisles of a cathedral. What are the name of the sides of a cathedral? Do you know what the name of that is, Greg? Pews? No, not, not the places where you sit. I mean, like there's always like a central area where all the, the seating is, but then there's usually a set of columns. And then there's still like what look like walkways or, you know, their passages on the sides of the church. Okay. Anyway, I could feel the energy would come down and it would start swirling in a circular motion around the outside of the church. It wasn't going on necessarily inside. It was swirling on the outside. And I noticed the rose windows. And in this particular case, the rose windows were obvious cymatic patterns. If you could put these patterns through the waves of, and sand, you would know exactly what the pattern was. So I could see the combination of the energy moving the giant organ when it started to play, and again, of course, the name organ, so it's related to the human organ, it's related to the energy system, that with the energy, the organ, and blasting that energy out of those rose windows, which would change the cymatic energy into an exact frequency, my guess is that not only would, when it was fully operational, I don't think these are fully operational anymore, but when they were fully operational, I'm pretty sure you could just be healed by going into these cathedrals, that you wouldn't have really needed doctors too much. You could have just gone there and healed most everything you would have. And then this energy would be going out to the city, which depending on how the rose windows are structured, you're moving out balance, you're moving out harmony, you're moving out whatever you feel you need for your population. Honestly, it was, it was an awe-inspiring experience. But that wasn't as much of it. Once I got home, uh, came back here to Norway, Somehow I bumped into the world expositions, particularly the Chicago Exposition of 1893. And, I, and it was like just coming like literally right out of the cathedrals of Florence and tracking the energy there. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the same buildings, the same kind of structures. And once I started looking into the story of these expositions, they just made no sense whatsoever and demanded, as far as I was concerned, demanded a complete study on it. I saw no one had written a book yet on the strangeness of the fair. So I thought, okay, I'm an author, so I'll research it and write a book. I thought I'd do it in two or three months. I, I got through nine or 10 months and I had to just stop because I knew I could be researching this for 20 years. <laughs> yes, yes. That is super interesting. And just the last couple thousand years in particular do have some holes in it or seem kind of strange. I mean, I'm really interested in re-examining the timeline and the idea of resets. And it's a little strange that we have the Dark Ages followed by this explosion in the Renaissance, all the Gothic cathedrals. You know, if this is some sort of simulation, that sounds like one of those wipe the slate clean periods right before the Renaissance. And maybe who knows exactly how it works out. But what are your thoughts on 
you know, that period of 500 AD, the start of the Dark Ages, on through the Renaissance, and, you know, then we'll maybe get into the World Fairs, but do you have any thoughts on that earlier period? Well, from that particular research, I started to realize, well, obviously, the history we have of the 1800s is a lie. And so the more you look back in the past, I had to start questioning everything. Even like, say, the Renaissance, well, is, that, is that a real thing? We don't know for sure if that's a real thing. We have some stories, we have some events, we have some after-the-fact information, we have some very unique buildings and artwork, but we don't really know where they came from, who did them, and why they did them. So I've kind of had to step back and say, I'm not really sure what the heck's going on. I know that guy Fomenko had talked about there was a thousand years added to history, and there's a lot of his stuff I kind of tend to distance myself from because I find it a bit concerning. But this idea that obviously we really don't know what year it is. And once you start popping in this idea of resets, this idea that this entire, we'll call it human specifically, the human experience in this realm is what you might say constantly being manipulated and constantly being, as I try to say, energy upgraded for various reasons. A lot of these times in our history start to make potential sense when you start to look at them from different angles, like is the end of whatever we consider the Roman Empire, whenever that officially occurred, that's a type of reset. They, you literally wipe out one type of culture, one type of living and replace it with something else. And we maybe see that same thing happen in the 1800s. And I hate to say it, we're seeing it right now. People don't want to admit, but we're actually seeing it now. And that's where the study of these events that you're talking about are actually important, not to learn the past. That's not so important. It's to what does that tell us about right now? How can we use that information to stay one step ahead of what's going to occur here based on if we can figure out what happened then? Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. It does seem like they're gearing up for something big. And if these resets have happened in the past, well, we are in the middle of a story. So you would think they would happen again. But I just wanted to maybe dig into what you said about some concerning aspects of Fomenko's work and what you might have been talking about there. We've talked about Fomenko's work before, but I don't know how many listeners have actually read it or gotten into it to the depth that you have. I assume you think the concerning aspects are kind of the Russian-centric perspective, but you tell me. Well, that's one. Everybody tends to be writing history from their own perspective and their own centric idea, of course. My concerns were when he was talking about the more ancient past, for example, ancient Egypt, given that that's been a 10 or 15, was a 10 or 15 year study of mine. And he was sort of trying to indicate that Napoleon soldiers built the pyramids. Right. And that's obviously spoken by somebody who's never been there. Mm -hmm. Someone who's never actually been, not just to see the construction work, because the construction of and it doesn't even matter the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau. You could look at the ones at Dashur, or you look at some of the other giants that are obviously old, unique, different from everything else. So never mind the construction techniques. It's once you start getting into the what happens with the energy. There is no pyramid anywhere in Egypt where I have not had an actual experience, like the kind of thing where you could write eight or ten pages on the experience. So something is beyond just a simple building process of it, there, there literally is a, it's like a portal. It's a portal 
almost outside of our bubble. If you think of this as like the bubble of the Truman Show or the way Pleasantville is set up as this sort of recurring loop or any of these shows that kind of lost where they're always on the island, pyramids to me are like exit points in and out of this particular bubble of reality that we're in. And so because of that, to think that a few soldiers could show up from France and build them, I, I think that's Anyone who's producing information like this, the same way Egyptologists are trying to produce information that these stones that you see carved on the Giza Plateau, these granite and basalt things with giant drill hole cores in them or perfectly curved edges are made by copper tools, it's impossible. It's actually impossible. These are, you're at the point of having laser type technology. I think it's all designed in one way or another to deflect the human understanding that how much power we actually have, what kind of great inner ability that not only the mind, but the heart, the entire source of the human being potentially has that we've been so cut off from for so long, and they don't want anyone looking into the past when humans had access to these inner skills, because we would start demanding to get them again. And the group that's keeping us, you might say, docile and farm animals is making sure that we don't even think about the ancient world that way. We want to see them as savages, as idiots, as as slaveholders, as whatever they want to get us to think they are. But the actual on-site exploration of these places indicates that they're literally living in a different universe. Like I, I almost feel when I'm at Giza Plateau, I'm actually touching a different universe. It might still be in the same three-dimensional reality that I was in, but I'm so at a different energetic frequency period that it's like it feels like I'm in a different universe. Same thing I get that at Teotihuacan in Mexico. And it's one of the reasons I love going to these places because it felt like I was touching something far more, mm, I don't want to say real because it's that's an illusion itself, but <laughs> far more the possibilities of this existence are more in display still at those sites. Mm. Wow. Well, I do appreciate the passion, and I agree with you that it is ignorant and dismissive of how impressive these structures are to suggest that they were just whipped up in a weekend and backcasted through history. It seems that the more reasonable perspective would be that there are sometimes wipes of humanity, and then the old structures from the previous round still remain. And we just don't have much information on them and things get repopulated. And it's it's more kind of in that regard where everybody is just thrust into chaos, but they can see the echoes of the time before their most recent reset. Would that be kind of your general perspective of how things work in this reality? Yeah, most definitely. And when it comes to the pyramids, I got a really good piece of information from a, a Russian researcher who died six or seven years ago, Alexei. I'd have to remember his name. He's with the place called the Laboratory of... It'll come to me as we talk. Okay. But he was presenting that a lot of what we see of what we think of as sort of crude tunnel systems and whatever to some of these pyramid structures that kind of don't fit so well with the perfect design sometimes, that's the ancient Egyptians doing archaeological work themselves. That mm. what we think of as Pharaonic Egypt, Old Kingdom Egypt, didn't build any of these things. In fact, they are so old that by the time Pharaonic Egypt showed up, even with all of their knowledge and all of their power, they still had no idea what they were dealing with. 
And they were literally doing their own archaeological digs, trying to figure out what these things are and how you use them. And once that information got into my head, it was like, oh, okay, it makes sense now what I'm seeing. I could now start to categorize, okay, what's old, old pre-Egypt? What's done by the Pharaonic Egyptians? What's done by some later Egyptians? You could actually start seeing the periods of time of when this was put together. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of looking at the the timeline broadly, I, I definitely think that's super interesting to think of them as doing their own excavation because we think about these as kind of like, all this happened at once. We just don't know about what's underground. And it's it's just a kind of a twist on what you'd usually think. But when looking at the timeline broadly, how do you think they create such chaos and devastation as to completely get people confused or erase their memory of the previous time before a reset? What mechanisms do you think are used for resets? And I mean, is this done at a level higher than our elite, or is this something that's done kind of on the on the capstone cabal level? I think it's beyond that. I think if you start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality, and that's not really true. I don't want anyone to think that is what reality is, but it's a decent metaphor for the standpoint of trying to you know, have a discussion about it. So these things would be happening like literally from the mainframe of the computer itself. The changes would be coming from there. And if things need to be done by, you might say, the level below, the level below, the level below, they just get the information and know what to do. Of course, the easiest way to do this, which I think you see through the 1800s to the World Fairs, is this idea of wipe out a large segment of the adult population specifically and leave yourself with a mostly child population. If you have mostly children left after a giant series of destructions, that child population is going to be believing whatever you're telling them, right? They're ripe for information. They don't really have any knowledge themselves. There's no one else there that can give them a different story or a different idea. That's the first thing you would do, would be to have start with a child population. And within a generation, within 40, 50 years, most of the old knowledge would be wiped out. If you were looking at older cultures, then you would find ways to implant different mythology, different stories into their standard myths that begin to confuse those who hear them, that they're hearing one myth that says one thing, one myth that says something else, and everything starts to get confused, and they're not really sure what to believe anymore. I know that one of the medicine men that I had spent some time with, he was very clear that when I would go in his sweat lodge, he would tell me, you know, whatever we experience here and whatever we do and whatever I can do, this is nothing compared to like 500 years ago. We've lost almost all of the main ceremonies, all of the main knowledge that the medicine people used to have, the little bit he's carrying, which seems fantastic to be there. He's acknowledging it's like 10% of what the old ones used to know. And again, we're just, as you begin to process this, just how much on so many levels of knowledge and wisdom we've lost in the reality. On the positive side, it seems like these last two or three years, and I don't think just because of the last two or three years, but because of something that's happening energetically to our realm, there are so many pieces of this old knowledge and old wisdom pushing their way back up for those who want to know it and explore it. So as much as this is a giant set of chaos, insanity, it's also a great doorway. It's like 
doorways are open right now to anybody who wants to really get to the truth of themselves, this reality, all sorts of things. It's here right now. And a lot of these things that we're sort of having speculation about are, I think, becoming more and more available to knowledge for whoever wants to know them. Very well said. And I'm glad you brought up what you heard from some of these indigenous spiritual teachers that you've spent time with, because on top of the World's Fair stuff, there's also a video you have on your YouTube channel about this old panorama of San Francisco from 1878. It's actually your most popular YouTube video out of everything that you've done. You made a lot of good points there. The city looks complete, but there are no people in the streets, no hustle and bustle in a full 360 degree image from the center of the city. There's cathedrals and domed buildings, all supposedly built by cowboys and miners from the gold rush, which you suggest might be one of those cover stories for a repopulation effort when they found this city kind of as it was. And I bring that up because you have spent time with Native American medicine men. Have you ever asked them about their version of history and who could have built a city like San Francisco if it wasn't as we were told it was built? Yeah, unfortunately, and I feel like I wished I had known these insights or had studied these insights 25 years ago when I was with them. I think only one of the medicine people I, I had worked with is still alive. Um, and no, so I, I haven't been back to North America for a long, long time and haven't seen these gentlemen directly for 10 or 15 years. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to ask them. My hope is that some others out there who are still, because someone like your channel here has a lot of really interesting, good researching people that are listening to these shows. And I know people are connected still in North America to some Native Indians that they know. It would be great if you have access, go and ask, go and look up some of the things that Greg has just talked about. If this is new to you, whether it be San Francisco or the World Fairs or the possibility of this giant civilization in North America existing long before it was supposed to. And if you have access to any of the medicine men, please go and ask them. And, and if you get answers, get in touch with me. I, I'd really like to know because I really don't have that same kind of access anymore. I wished I did, but I don't. Fair, fair points. And uh, you're only one man. You can only be expected to do so much, but the call has been levied against the audience and we will see what people come up with. But, I think that's an important, sorry, Greg, I think good. that's a really, that's also an important comment to make here is that I'm only one person, just like all the researchers are only one person. And it hurts me sometimes when I feel or see some of the researchers, and it doesn't matter what field, whether it's in metaphysics, philosophy, and they sort of try to own their research or block off anything else. And the only way we're going to know things is each one of us find a small piece of the jigsaw puzzle, bring them to everybody and put them all together into one giant and in the puzzle together. If we're holding back our piece, we're never going to see the whole. We have to find the piece that's ours to find, share it with the group that we can share it with, and see what happens when we put them all together. I think it's a really important thing that if we don't share this stuff, we're never going to see the next level. Yes. Cheers to that. And just to go back to the idea of a repopulation effort, I've heard of orphan trains, and there are some pretty wild stories of kids being transported long distances across the U.S. from apparently all over the world. I've heard from South America. I've heard from Europe. And the 
reasons for this are usually pretty flimsy, but what would you say in terms of evidence that we can look at or stories we have that involve the transportation or the movement of large numbers of children? For the people who are like, what, this just sounds too far out. What would you cite as, well, maybe you should take another look at this because it might be actually possible. Yeah, you're looking at the two elements. First is we've got children. And we're talking about sort of the, the time of the late 1800s here. So we're talking about children and we're talking about insane asylums. And they kind of go hand in hand with each other. Mm. So we have these stories of, we see a lot of these photos and images, for example, of children working in the mines and so much of the work being done by children. It's usually presented as if, oh, it's cheap labor. We're working the children to the bone. But realistically, an eight-year-old kid is not going to be anywhere close to getting you the kind of quality manpower that a human adult is going to give you. So I'm already starting to wonder if we're seeing so many children working, it's because there actually are no adults to work, <laughs> that if they had adults, they would be using them. And so I'm kind of leaning a bit to the possibility that we're seeing these time periods where literally adults have been eliminated. And one of the areas of elimination of them is these insane asylums. Again, go take a look at these things if you haven't seen them from like the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. There was an explosion worldwide of insane asylums everywhere. And, and they're not just small buildings. These rival Medici palaces in Florence, they're massive and they're beautiful with towers and domes and spirals. And the question becomes, why do you need so many insane asylums? Who all of a sudden is going insane in 1885? It starts to make sense if you realize maybe these are adults who still remember the old world, who still remember the old way of doing things. And in a sense, they're being sent to these places as reindoctrination camps, and they stay in them until they either reindoctrinate or leave. I had another interesting theory come up to me that perhaps these insane asylums were so opulent that obviously they'd taken over old palaces and turned them into insane asylums, and maybe they needed the energy because they, they were trying to use the ones who survived the last reset, whatever it was, whether it's by, you know, some sort of natural, whether these are natural occurrences that happen cyclically or whether they're planned and put in place. And maybe they were using them to try to raise the energy frequency of those who had been through the last world to get their memories out of them. I don't know, but the combination of the two just makes it very, very, very strange. And it starts to open the doors to any part of history you want to ask. I mean, we've got some film footage. Granted, it's doctored, but we've got film footage of the Kennedy assassination, and still we have no idea what happened there. How are we supposed to know what happened two, 300, 500 years ago when we don't even have photography? We're so in the dark with trying to understand any of this stuff, and it's so much is taken on belief. Belief rules the historical realm, and you have to put all the belief aside and start absolutely fresh and say, you know, I don't know anything. And it would be a great way to teach history to students. Students would actually like history. If the teacher walked in day one and said, yeah, we got a book here. This is what the people in the universities tell us. But actually, we don't know anything at all. And we're going to start our examination with this book and see if we can find anything that's true. Man, that would be a great way to start a history class. But that's not what it is. Yeah, yeah, it really would. It would be exciting to at least make kids feel like they could discover something new or make some kind of impact, even if it's just to kind of motivate them to get into the study, as opposed to regurgitating facts and just basically telling them that 
There's nothing left to discover. It's all known. Now you need to memorize it and spew it back out on this test. But you mentioned the idea that another reset could occur. And the idea of a global reset sounds so epic. And it may be hard to apply the modern configuration of our world with like times in the past. But of course, if it's a simulation, all bets are off and anything's possible. But if you hypothetically wanted to do something like that in the modern world, what might you do? You might release a virus where on the TV, the only real common thing that it's told that they say about it that has been true from the beginning is this really isn't a problem for kids. Everybody, you need to know, not really a problem for kids. A lot of adults are going to die, though. And then you roll out a global vaccination campaign, which potentially could have something in it that kills everybody who takes it within three to five years. Bada bing, bada boom, you're left with a world of mostly children. You need one adult to run the mine for the 500 kids you have with the pickaxes down there doing the work. Uh, but it doesn't seem super far-fetched that it couldn't be possible when we already have the term The Great Reset being bandied about. And we have this global situation that caused everyone to react or a big amount of people to react. And the story the whole time was not really a problem for kids. So I just find that interesting. But we're talking about this reset being at a level higher than our capstone cabal, the puppet masters of the power pyramid, the elite, whatever you say. But I've heard you talk about NPCs. And in a simulation, there could be a, a point to be made that these elite, they might just be aspects of the simulation. Who really gets close to a, a Henry Kissinger or a Klaus Schwab? I've talked to so many guests who say they've been in the elevator with a person in this circle or something, and they feel soulless or they feel different. When you met the queen, you're not supposed to look into her eyes, but Adam Curry did, and he said he saw nothing. So these are weird aspects. Maybe these people aren't even human, but they're part of the game itself. Talk to us a little bit about NPCs and how you see the simulation being run and the prospect of a no, uh, of a coming reset. Yeah, a ton of information. So I'll try to go through a little bit that I wrote down while you were talking. The first, I guess, is to think of, because I, I, I didn't, when I wrote my book in 2019, I was talking about resets. And this was long before the things that were starting to happen now. So it was actually a little creepy when that word started to be thrown about as this is what we're doing in our world now. And I'm like, oh, man, I was writing about this before this even happened, kind of, oh, boy. And I kind of realized we're in it now. This is no joke. And I think that's what people need to recognize. When people are thinking the reset is monetary or it's government or it's something about the world. No, it's about energy. It's an energetic reset that you can think of it that the power source of this reality, the power source of the simulation is obviously now needing more power. I can't say the exact reason why, but my theory is now that when these resets happen, there needs to be a new way of power to get into the system. So that makes sense to me that the reset, as we're starting to see it, the end results, if we start following along where this seems to want to go today, is to have humans connected with AI, connected in sort of a robotic way where they're plugged directly into the AI system. And this would make sense that if humans are an energy source, if humans are here being farmed for energy, as a number of people and writers have talked about through history, 
it would also make sense. You would find you would probably get a better ability or a better cleaner harvest if the human was plugged into the system itself, there would be no loss. If the human is outside the system, there's going to be some sort of energy loss as you have to take the energy from the human through the space into the machine, whatever, you know, is taking it. So it would make sense that the thought process would be, well, if we need more energy, all we have to do is plug the human directly in or, or the being, the animal, whatever. We're plugged in now directly and now there's no energy loss. So my first thought is, if we're looking at what's going on on an energy level, we may start to understand what's really going on, what the real purpose of this is, and of course, what we need to do about it. When you talk about the NPCs, this comes from a couple of personal stories for me. And I started noticing this, wow, like the first one I ran into was like 1999. There's two stories there. One, though, was was a negative story and a positive story. But in both cases, I didn't think I was dealing with a human in any way, shape, or form. One was a guy in a bookstore. I was there to meet a friend of mine. And this guy was just staring at me. And when I looked at him, his eyes were like dark. I wouldn't necessarily black, but they were just dark. He was staring at me and not blinking. And I had the sense that he was trying to like, almost like suck the soul out of me. And I remember I just stood there and I looked at him. and. I was in a staring contest with him and I was mentally projecting, if you come a step closer, I'm going to put my hands around your throat and I'm going to kill you. And we just stood there and I don't know whether it's a minute or whether it was 50 minutes. I have no idea. We just stared at each other. And then finally, after a certain amount of time, this thing just turned around and walked out of the store. <laughs> my friend had seen all of this occur. He had seen this taking place. And when it was done, I remember I was rigid. I was like a tree. I was so tight with, you know, intensity. And he just put his arm around me and said, you can never back down from them. Otherwise, they'll walk over you the rest of your life. And so that was a powerful thing to start with to get that recommendation. And then the second story was, I was taking some friends to a, a stone circle that I like to take people to in Norway. And I was in one stone circle, they were in another stone circle. And all of a sudden, this woman just appeared out of nowhere, like literally out of nowhere. And walked into the circle and had this conversation with her. And, and right away, I could see from where I was, I was a distance away that she was a little transparent, almost like a tuner on a radio. She would come in, she would go out. She would come in, she would go out. When she walked away, I walked over to my friends and said, so did you, I mean, do you remember every single thing she said to you? Why? Because that wasn't a person you were talking to. What do you mean it's not a person? That's not a person you were talking to. I asked, where did she come from? Well, kind of over there. Well, what's over there? Well, it's the forest. Yeah, and where did she go? Well, yeah, she didn't go down the pathway. She kind of there. She kind of just, I guess, into the forest. Right. She came out of the forest and she went into the forest. What was the first thing she said to you? Oh, she said that she's the protector of this area. Protector of this area? Do you think some 68-year-old woman is coming around here with a lawnmower and some cutters and is looking after the stone circle? No. So do you understand that you are dealing with something not human? And they finally began to... and. Uh, in this case, this was a very positive thing, probably. So I think we've got so many out there that have a human exterior to us, but one way or another are not. So we have to recognize that we've got uh, negative sides of this, which you might call soulless robots. And we've also got other things that seem to be an extension of the natural world or an extension of the total power of this place that are also in some way offering their help and offering their assistance and we sort of need to know when we come across them that we are and which one we've got. Huh. 
Well, I certainly like those stories, and I know I threw a lot at you there because I wanted to pack a lot of those concepts into the first hour while we still could, and we should maybe fit this in as well because the Soul Trap book is your latest one, and obviously you heard the Wayne Bush interview. He's quoted at the beginning of your book. People love that idea, and I've heard you say that we have two options when we look at the 1800s. Either we went through a reset somewhere and things were restarted and repopulated, or option two is that we have a simulation reality and we don't know when the simulation started. Everything before the start is just Westworld backstory for the robots, and I really like that. But talk to us about option two a bit and how it might relate to the newest book and at least provide some context for what or why this reality even is. Yeah, that's a great comment to make. You know, Wayne Bush, I think, just a great researcher. His site is fantastic. He was a great inspiration, actually, to get my work started on this book, which is sort of trying to ask questions, a combination of what is this place really? Why is it set up? Who set it up? Who created it? For what purpose? And we're going to die and we're going to have to experience something. Is there a way to get out of a, an endless reincarnation cycle? And a part of that story is digging into, okay, if we're dealing with a simulation, which seems to be more and more correct. And again, I hate to call it a simulation because it's simplifying something much more massive. So again, please, if you're listening, I'm not saying it is exactly a simulation the way we know them in our world. It just, it's a metaphor to discuss where we're in. Mm -hmm. But any simulation has two things that are part of it. One is a start time. There is a day zero, day one of the simulation. There's also a simulation is normally not just, it's copied on something. There's something that it's copied from. So we'll take the first one. And this leads into Westworld. It leads into a whole lot of questions. Okay, if we're in a simulation and the simulation had a start day, there's an official start day of the simulation. Well, when is that? Maybe it's five days ago. Maybe it's 50 years ago. Maybe it's 200 years ago. Who knows when the start date is? But that would mean every single thing we think of as history. And let's say it's in our own life. Never mind putting it 500 years ago. What if we put it, the simulation started 12 years ago? That's a great example. 2010, that's when that simulation started. So not just everything in history potentially everything we think of as a memory in our life, our own personal life experience is the same. It's just the backstory of a robot in Westworld. And so that leads also, in my book, I talk a lot about the movie Dark City, which to me is one of the greatest movies ever made. And that's another key element of Dark City is that every night the humans are getting brand new memories, brand new identities pumped into them, which they believe to be real. And whatever stories put into them, they believe that that's their past. And we actually have no proof, generally, other than superficial ideas that anything 20 years ago really happened. We don't know whether that really happened or whether literally we've been in equivalent, injected with memories and told to believe that's us. I know it's kind of mind-bending to dig into that, but for me, if you can actually figure out when the simulation started, you now know exactly what are things that are because there's no point studying before the simulation began. That's just backstory. It's things that didn't actually happen in our so-called experience. And we could really focus our time in on what did happen. And I think if we're dealing with a simulation, I don't think it started that long ago, maybe five or 600 years at the most. I, maybe literally 2,000 years might be the most 
we have an actual simulation. So here are all these pyramids. Are they really just literally inserts that when the simulation started, they're just there and they're literally just copies of the pyramids in another realm that you might say where we really come from. It's mind bending to start contemplating this stuff, but I think we have to. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could consider them just to use the simulation analogy, old code. Like so often our phone will have an update and everything will change, but maybe there's a little old code in there somewhere when it comes to the infrastructure we're looking at. And that's why it looks so beat up and so old. Yeah. Or again, it's just we've, <laughs> rather than an, almost like an upgrade, instead of thinking like the every time we go through a new coding, it gets upgraded. We can almost think it's getting downgraded. All right. So literally, then that would change the ideas, too, that the further you go back in the resets, the further you go back in the code, you're actually dealing with a more pure code. That's another set of ideas and theories that have been presented to me that actually we are, from the standpoint, we're devolving as we go through the years of the simulation, not evolving. Hence, the, if we're honest and we look back further and further and further in the past, we're seeing actually more and more greatness, more and more harmony, more and more spectacular things because we're the ones that are getting the old, we're kind of getting the junky code as opposed to the clean code that used to be here a long time ago. Yes, fair points. And I have heard you talk about how it seems like they're trying to push us into the whole metaverse thing, which is a simulation inside of the simulation. And that's another parallel is that a lot of people feel like even with their phones and with their software, the updates are really downgrades. And maybe that's just because inside the simulation, it's a fractal of the larger system. And what you say about previous incarnations is true as well. I like that idea. But your latest book is called Exit the Cave. And let's talk about Plato's Cave, because you write that a foundational discussion point for the book is the allegory of Plato's Cave. That is found in his book, Republic. It is the story of a cave of prisoners being tricked into living a life of illusion. Researchers attempt to explain the analogy of Plato's Cave and its exit simply. They fit their analysis into their beliefs of this world, and few question whether it is a useful analogy. This book is not concerned much with traps in this realm. This book is looking for the foundation of all traps. Well, <laughs> what is the foundation of all traps and how does Plato's cave relate? Well, Plato's cave, I think everybody who digs into it, into these stories, has to come across Plato's cave. It's just presented to you. And it's presented as the perfect, primal, original description of reality. And we all take it for granted that, well, if everybody, all these researchers tell us Plato's Cave is great, it must be. Then I read it. And of course, Plato's Cave is the foundation of so many of these movies that we talk about. So Truman Show, Matrix, Dark City, movie after movie after movie. They're retellings of Plato's Cave. So I reread Plato's Cave when I started writing my book. I'm, okay, I'm writing Exit the Cave. I better reread Plato's Cave one more time to make sure I see what's in there. And it took me like five minutes to start realizing all the important stuff is missing. The key elements of what we need to know about Plato's cave is not there. So the story actually begins, or the allegory, I guess is what we should call it, begins with Socrates talking to Plato's brother, Glaucon, and explaining to him there's a cave, and there's prisoners in the cave, and these prisoners have been brought in there just after birth. They're placed in seats in such a way that they're chained together, and they can only see forward under the cave walls. Talks about 
the fire in the background and the people who are moving objects in front of the fire to cast shadows on the walls. And and so, okay, we, we get the sense. This is telling a story of illusion, that, but we're missing key elements. The key elements right off the bat being what prisoners? Where do the prisoners come from? Why are they prisoners? Were they fighting in a war? If so, what war? Why are they brought to this cave? Why wouldn't they go to a prisoner of war camp? What is the cave? Is the cave something man-made? Is, is something that's existed previously? Why are the why are the beings who are going through all this work to fool these prisoners? Why are they doing that? Why are they going through all that trouble? So within the first five minutes of reading the story, you wind up with like ten absolutely important questions, and we know that the prisoners are us. So the prisoners in the story are told they are us allegorically. So right off the bat, we're like, why don't you give us all this extra information? Because that would explain a ton of what we're dealing with. None of it is there. And that got me starting to wonder, well, what is Plato's cave really doing for it? Is it helping us or is it actually distracting us? Hmm. Very interesting. I've heard you talk about the fact that well, why would you go to all this effort to distract and dazzle people who are already prisoners, who are chained up? And that's a very great point. And it makes me ask you, well, to scale that up to our simulation or our false reality, why not just let us know we're trapped too? Because if this is a loose generation farm of some kind, that would generate plenty of negative emotion to feed on to just tell everyone they're trapped. Again, I guess the best slave is always one that falsely thinks that they're free, right? Touche. So it must have something to do with this idea because Plato tends to say that actually the prisoner's chains are not locked, that they can stand up, they can move around the cave whenever they want to. So it indicates that there's something about the prisoner, that us ourselves, that are part of the locking mechanism of the trap. So it's not just that we're being deceived, we're also deceiving ourselves. Mm. Another key element of the story that most people, the allegory that people forget or overlook is that one prisoner eventually stands up, he goes around the cave, he sees the experience going on, and they think, the average person, if you ask them to tell them the story of Plato's cave, and they say, oh, and then the prisoner goes outside. And actually, no, the prisoner is dragged outside. Socrates said, what would happen if they dragged the prisoner outside the cave? So even in the story, one of the prisoners, they don't even have the story where the prisoner leaves on their own. They have to actually be dragged outside to see a greater reality. And that's also interesting of like, well, why not write into the allegory of a prisoner who actually left? And this became really incredibly important for me as I was going through the research and writing the book is that I looked through other books, other similar stories, other movies, never ever do we see a story where the character actually leaves Plato's cave. They wind up knowing the cave better. They wind up maybe getting more powers where they can influence the cave, where they can alter the cave, where they can make the cave a bit better, where they can help people within the cave. But there's never an example of actually exiting, leaving the simulation, which would actually be being completely gone from the simulation. So that's the part that really drags into me. It's that what's most important, it seems like we are dealing with deception upon deception upon deception, layer upon layer upon layer of false that has been thrown at us since long before we were born. 
You know, even in the pre-birth state, we are being deceived constantly. But the one thing that's being hid from us or attempted to be hidden, the only thing they're trying to really make sure that we have no access to is how do we just get the hell out? How do we just say, I've had enough of this crap and I'm done. And they're trying to make sure that is like the hardest thing to find. And that's what I'm hoping this book is starting to get towards. And eventually I'm assuming the world doesn't go into total chaos that I will have a second book on this subject next May or so. I plan on continuing this research for another six to eight months, taking it even to another level from where I'm at now. And I'm, I'm hopeful that more will act because that, to me, that's the only thing that matters. This is me personally. I'm tired of this place. I'm tired of that this is set up as a suffering pit of hell. And I know, I know so many people will have their own spin. It's one thing I've really started to find from the interviews now that I've done in the last month or so about the book is that as soon as I say suffering pit of hell, I'm always responded with a belief structure of why it's okay for this to be suffering, why it's okay that a loving God could have created such suffering in this realm. And thankfully or not thankfully, I've finally come to the place where I've broken that attempt to try to answer it. And I just realized it's set up this way. That's just what this is. And I've come to the place where I'm ready to go home. And that's the best way to describe it. I'm ready to go home. Damn. I'm ready to go in sort of Gnostic terminology to return to the true father, to return where, where I actually come from. And this book is kind of my way of helping me put the pieces together to learn what needs to be done to do that. And if others can get some pieces of information that helps them, and if some feel like they want to join along the way and try to do the same thing, fantastic. But I know it's hard for a lot of people to have to discuss the subjects that are in my book now because it seems so negative on the surface. It seems like I'm just presenting negative information. But if you're going to get to something true, then you have to see very clearly what's here, what the experience of our life really is, what the experience of what we are really is. The end result of it is extremely positive because truth is always positive. Truth is always the doorway to totality. But if you're just going to trick yourself, and I've tricked myself for 20 years, and there's several areas I'm still tricking myself. I know that. I've got a long way to go to keep getting the answers I know that I need. Or maybe a short way, I don't know. But I know there's more to go. But it's important to recognize that you have to be okay to deal with potentially negative answers that are honest coming back to you because the end result will make it worthwhile to have seen honestly and seen clearly the truth is always positive, but it can be a difficult road to get there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I certainly think describing reality as a pit of hell is strong language. It doesn't bother me, but I've enjoyed my time here and really haven't had much tragedy, but I'm also in the middle of a story. And as you go through, you know, a lot of my friends and in inner circle are getting into our late 30s and people are losing their parents. And that's obviously tragic. And it's kind of like we all reach that phase of the story, whether it happens early or late. Generally, you're going to lose your parents. As you get older, you're going to lose your friends, lose your spouse. Hopefully you don't lose your children. But you really can't say if it was an ultimate tragedy until you're in the third act, whenever that third act is for you. So I think it's totally possible. It's certainly set up that nobody gets 
out without experiencing some loss. And what is that about? You know, is that's why the, the Buddhist philosophy is that life is ultimately suffering. But from my out-of-body experiences, psychedelically charged, yes, the other side is like this blanket of love. And you definitely feel like in that moment, you know what? I don't want to go back. And you don't really think too deeply about, well, what about the the people you're leaving behind? You're just like, this is so amazing. I don't want to go back. They'll come here eventually. So I'm not that worried about it. And these are all the thoughts that I had just in those moments. But, you know, the entities that I feel like I had communicated with had said to me that the value of this reality, of this physical layer, is that you get to experience taste and physical pleasure and warm, cozy blankets and see sunsets, that the structure is valuable to people in the spirit world. The reason spirits want to come here is to have experience, and it's not all negative. It's partly in the story why the angels are jealous of man, is we're here, we can create things, we have the five senses, and those senses can provide intense pleasures not always, but it is an aspect of reality. And I feel like when I've had conscious communication with something that is an intelligence outside of a body, it has basically said to me, I'm kind of jealous of your experience, man. It's like a grass is always greener kind of thing. And I'm sitting there like, well, I don't even want to go back to that. I'd stay here if I could. And then the drugs wear off. But this is like kind of the thing is it's just how you look at it, I suppose. But a simulation is a simulation either way. It's false by definition. It's not the true reality. It's false by definition. And without going into too much detail on all this, I think all of that's a trick. I'm open to it. Yeah, I think it's all designed to, particularly when you go through the standard near-death experience, I think what the average person, you know, because it's a near-death, they don't actually die. I think it's a propaganda campaign and it's designed to take a very confused soul and in a sense, give them a drug of love, a bombing of love where they lose their ability to have real logic ability. They work out of total feeling. So they're very easy to manipulate. And I talk a lot about that in my book, how I see the experience now as likely a, a giant set of manipulation. And it's hard to talk about because I know how People have built a certain structure that the world has to be good. The loving God is the one who made this place, and he cares about me, and he cares about us, and he's given this a place for wonderful experiences. And yeah, I've had wonderful experiences too. But, you know, right now, today, there are probably going to be, what, 50 million girls, young girls are going to get raped tonight by their parents. How many are going to be tortured in various systems all over the world? It's easy. When you're living a life when you don't have to worry about feeding yourself, when you know you've got some food in the fridge, when no one's going to be banging down your door and potentially dragging you off to a concentration camp or whatever, it becomes very easy to see the world as it's okay. You start spending time in Africa or the Middle East or India or just about anywhere in the world and see the cesspool of difficulty. And it doesn't mean there isn't beauty in the world. It doesn't mean there isn't wonderful experiences. And I'm thrilled when they come by. I'm thrilled when an experience of love happens or connection happens or a beautiful place in nature. But I know it's just like a rest plateau. I know that's not really what this place is set up to do. And if I just look closely, 
I know somebody else is going through the pits of hell, even though I'm going through a really nice experience. So that's partially why I'm saying it's a suffering pit of hell. That doesn't mean it it is all the time for everyone else. It, and again, because we don't know our past lives, because we get these things memory wiped before we come in, just like a robot in Westworld, maybe the last one, you know, the last one was horrible. You know, this one, well, it's not so bad. Uh, you know, I think, yeah, this is okay. But we can't see all the lives we've actually had and all the potential horror and suffering we had in the other one. So it's another problem I have with this whole setup. Like you say, the whole simulation and everything that's involved with it, if they're not going to let us at least have access and memory to all of our lives, all of our experiences, to really be able to make clear understandings of where we are and where we're not, to just send us out in this reality blind and really not give us any knowledge or any understanding indicates to me it's a system designed to trick me and deceive me and lie to me. If the system was designed to help me, it would for sure give me as much totality of experience that I've had so that I would know where to go next or not. And I know that's hard for some people to hear, but I tried my best to find a positive outcome for 25 years. And I finally just, I guess I finally become an, uh, a Cathar. I guess the best <laughs> way to describe it. I guess I've become a Cathar. And uh, yeah, that's why their chapter 14 of my book is all about their story and what they believed and how they tried to live their existence to, as they say, end the reincarnation trap of Rex Monday. So, yeah. I love it. Hell of a segue. And that is exactly what I was going to ask you about, because we have talked on this show plenty about the Gnostics and how they saw this as a false reality. But you write about the Cathars, who are sometimes considered a Gnostic sect under the umbrella of Gnostics, but they are a specific people. And you write in the book, as for the Cathars, why is the study of a group of people genocided in the 13th century important? The Cathars had as their main belief that this was a world created by an evil god, Rex Mundi, who kept them in a reincarnation cycle, and their only focus in this life was to escape it. The Cathars were not concerned with making this place better, finding new forms of government or commerce or anything else. Their focus was to escape the evil realm of the Rex Mundi forever and return home to the Father. Well, how did they come to this conclusion? And if they were dedicated to escaping, how were they attempting to do that in their day? Well, I think what I should do, because I know we're coming to the end of the first hour portion of this, and I'd like to leave because, you know, I just had a pretty harsh negative outcome. I'd like to leave something positive, if that's okay with you. Well, that's fine. I plan to actually end this a little bit earlier ago, like in my mind as oh. I'm thinking about how it will go through, because I'm not okay. really one of those people that does. Here's a decisive split. Oh. But uh, either way, okay. we'll have to no. talk a little bit longer overall if then you're cool fine. with that. But yeah, let's let this be the end of the first hour. I have no problem with that. It's a fluid thing. But we will have to talk a little bit longer than expected. Okay, I'm happy to talk about the Cathars next, but I think it's good to share the stories of prayer because it's so valuable for people to hear these stories. Okay. If that's okay. It is. Hit me with it. I figured this is an important time to share the element of prayer. And it's something I had been studying for quite a long time, ever since I started working with the medicine people who the number one part of all of their ceremony is prayer and trying to understand what they were doing. And I, I've written several times as I've tried to understand that the main element of their prayer was saying thank you, not actually asking for something. And Okay, I started to understand it a bit. And then as I began working in the material that became this book, I started seeing that 
the way the normal person has learned how to pray is probably turning us into prey. By going outside of ourselves, by praying to anything outside of ourselves, we are setting up a possibility of energetic manipulation. We are turning ourselves into prey. So why not learn how to pray to ourselves? And as I spoke to a medicine man I still have connection to uh, a little while ago, I told him this idea, and he shared a story with me, and I want to share that with everybody. That story is about 20 years ago, New Mexico or Arizona was going through a, a terrible drought, and they called in the local medicine men of the area, and they tried to call for rain, and it never rained. So they brought in a different medicine man from the north, and he came down and did his ceremony, and that night it rained, and it rained for three or four days straight. And they finally asked him, why did your ceremony work when the others didn't? And he said, oh, the other medicine men were praying for rain. And when you pray for something, that means it doesn't exist now. I just prayed rain. And when I shared this back with Jerry, I said, so what actually happened is he first became rain. He wasn't human medicine man praying to rain. He was rain praying to rain. So the only thing that existed in the reality was rain. So, of course, it would have to rain. And he said, yeah, that's exactly the way it worked. And he told me some other stories of his uncle Bearheart that had gone through similar experiences. And I took that out into the forest the next day because it was it's blueberry season and I, I love to get my blueberries for the winter. Normally, I, I always pray. I always leave an offering. And I thank the forest. I thank the blueberries before I start. But then I thought, well, this time, before I do that, I'm going to become a blueberry. So it's not going to be human person giving the offering. I'm going to be a blueberry giving the offering to the blueberries. When that was done, I found more blueberries than I could have possibly picked in a week. It was the most unbelievable thing to realize that this is like an unbelievable secret. When you become the thing that you are praying to or for, the creation of it in the reality is almost automatic. And it was like, that was like getting the secret of secrets in the manifestation, in the simulation itself. So that's something I just, it's important that I want to pass on to everybody, this idea of if you start changing how you pray, start changing what prayer means to you, you might notice you're getting a really different response from the energy and the effort you put into it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really well said on the occasions where I have talked to occultists or magic practitioners. They emphasize that point as well, that it is important to speak in the present tense or in very specific language because the universe, let's just say, doesn't really understand the word not or whatever. So you have to talk as if you already have the thing you want. That's how you step into your reality. It's how manifestation works. And uh, when I hear so many different people making that point, it leads me to believe that it's probably very correct and it'll increase your potency. And we can call that the first hour and we can start off that second hour with the Cathars if you like. But I'm curious if their focus was getting out. Well, how did they do that in their day? Exactly the question I had. I studied the mysteries of Southern France now for almost 10 or 15 years. I started with the Rennes-le-Chateau story, dug into that, tried to find out what was true or not true about that, moved into the Knights Templar, moved into the Cathars, moved into the Gauls, moved into the real story, potential story of Jesus and the New Testament. And when I re-dug into the Cathars, I thought, well, they've got to have a great system in place 
obviously, if they were killed for it, they must have a system. But once you dig into whatever is remaining, we have so little remaining of what the Cathars believed or did or, or accessed, there's not much there. And I was kind of surprised. And I'm happy to share what I found with you because what I did get out of it makes me wonder, either they were doing something else and they managed even through the Inquisition to keep that hidden from the Church of Rome, or they missed a step somewhere and they were kind of fooling themselves. I'm not sure which it was, because always that exiting the cave is something so different from seeing the cave clearly. So we can talk about that. Let's do it. You know, one of my curiosities is if we're going to throw so much doubt on official stories, maybe they weren't quote unquote genocided. Maybe they did get out. There's another really interesting theory. Because the system's going to have to have a cover story. Yeah, that maybe they, because that's the story of the Mayas too, right? We have this great civilization, and then all of a sudden they just disappear. And archaeologists find no bodies, they find no evidence of warfare, they find, you know, it's just like they literally disappeared. So same thing, did they find a doorway and just vanished on their own? And then like you say, maybe the Cathars did that, and then a story was created around them. I'm not so sure, because one of the strange things that happens about the Cathars that made me start questioning this was a book from the 1970s by a psychologist. Wow, I can't think of his name now. Goodman or something, who lived in Bath, England, and claimed in the course of his various psychological studies that he was getting continuous people claiming to be reincarnated Cathars. And that he had like 20 or 30 of them who were giving him information that they shouldn't have. And they would go to France and they would verify this information. So that was another thing that made me wonder, okay, if the Cathars' whole presentation was exiting the reincarnation cycle, if someone is still reincarnating and still reincarnating six or 700 years in the future, something went wrong somewhere. So did only certain Cathars figure it out? Did only certain at certain times? Was it later on? Because we know the Cathars existed much longer than they are claimed to exist. So did certain ones only have the right exit tools? Others didn't? I don't know. But it's stories like that with the constant claim of, I was a reincarnated Cathar story that makes me wonder, well, if that was the whole purpose of your stories, no one asked them. I wish someone would ask like, okay, you say you're a reincarnated Cathar. Yes. Okay. So if your whole teaching is about ending the reincarnation cycle, why are you still reincarnating? I mean, that would be the most powerful information all of us could get, but no one seemed to ask that question. Hmm. Yeah. It just makes me think that maybe certain groups have jailbroken out of here. Maybe the Heaven's Gate cult figured it out and they were only made to seem stupid for the people left inside the game. Like, hey, don't pay attention to what they're doing. They're just a bunch of idiots wearing Nikes and killing themselves. You don't want to go down that road. So don't you worry about that over there. Meanwhile, maybe they found an opening and got out. I know most of the time, of course, is written. And of course, I wrote a lot about it in my book of sort of this how to exit after you die period, how to avoid some traps and deceptions and deal with the after death state. But I would also for sure say that there must be a way to do it before you die. There would have to be a way to almost, I heard it described as pop out of the matrix, that literally just now you're gone. But I think it requires quite a bit of preparation. I get a sense that one way or another, Carlos Castaneda in his own way was writing some of these ideas that 
I don't think, of course, he had total knowledge and there was lots of question marks about him and how he'd lived his life and the strangeness of his own life. But in the writings, I think are some of these ideas that could have become a pop out of the matrix moment. And I don't doubt that certain individuals and certain groups did understand how to do this. I was told a story by a friend of mine. I don't know if I should say this, but maybe uh, I will say you should. You should. That, that there was a book that existed in their family. They come from the, her family's from the Southeast Europe. So gypsy country. And that there was a particular book that was in her family. And if you read the book and did every single thing in this book completely, perfectly, exactly as the book said, when you were finished it, you would disappear. Damn. So I think this knowledge does actually exist out there in some very hidden underground form. There must be ways to do it, but it also seems like it's not something you, you learn in 24 hours, that there's a tremendous amount of learning, not just to deal to handle the material body, the mental body, the etheric body, the astral body, the whatever other body, that all of these things have to be really fine-tuned. And I think you've got to then know, you might say, where the crack or the portal or whatever it is to make the jump out. Mm-hmm. And as we're trying to find some way to wrap up all the wild stuff we talked about, I was listening to one of your previous interviews about the new Soul Trap book, and you were getting pretty worked up, saying that this era is so important. Nothing is getting fixed. We have maybe 6 to 12 months left, and if the whole thing isn't shut down in 6 to 12 months, it'll never be shut down. The game is that close to being finished. Pretty bold statements as we're pulling this all together. Do you still feel that way? The way I kind of described it was, uh, or tried to, it's it's so hard to try to say, especially when you, you know, you got the energy in it, but I felt that, and this was about, yeah, six months ago, maybe. Yeah, we were in like about a nine or 10 month period where there's going to be a pretty massive event. And we're starting to see how many balls are in the air right now. And that this event is going to guarantee lead this into the next reset. and. If people don't recognize it, and and I don't know if it can be changed. This is another important part. I'm, I'm not sure that whatever this event is going to be, that we can fix it. What we can do is recognize it's happening and, most importantly, move into our own power. That's really what all this is about anyway. The whole thing we've talked about for the last couple of hours, it's all about While you go externally and you look externally and you explore the cave, the most important thing you have to explore is yourself. And the most important thing we have to do is called going within or spiraling within or following the labyrinth within to the place of our own power, to the place of all the things we've kind of rejected about our true nature. All of us, every single person, whether they know it or not, has more power than they can possibly believe, has more access to everything you'd ever want to know. But if we focus that on trying to fix external, if we focus that on trying to say the world is insane or the world is going insane and I need to fix it, we're already losing a lot of our power. That instead we want to, I think, in my opinion, deepen that power, deepen our connection to it, help others to make that connection as well, to deepen our own power. What happens to the rest of reality around us because of it? will happen as it happens. We're not focused on fixing it. We're focused on taking ourselves to the totality of what we are and allowing that to be our guide 
to, in, in my case, of course, to leave the cave, but it might be different for everybody, but it's then following our own inner path and our own inner journey. The, the point I was making is, don't think you've got 10 or 20 years to do this work anymore. It's not 1980. You know, the things that applied in 1980 or 1990 and the things the self-help gurus said and all the spiritual books that came out, they don't apply anymore. All of that is no longer relevant. We are in a very compressed time frame now in a very compressed energetic state. That means there's a great opening, there's a great portal, there's a great possibility for knowledge. A lot of people are getting tremendous amounts of knowledge very, very quickly right now. It's overwhelming for a lot of people. They're having a tough time dealing with it. Now is the time to not only work for yourself, to finish the job that you started, you might say, of, of a path to truth, helping those that are particularly coming to knowledge very, very more quick than they're ready for and need some help, need some help to apply what's going on, understand what's going on. Because again, things that would normally you'd have five or 10 years to assimilate and work through, you've got you know, five or 10 months now, five or 10 weeks. And so my point was not in a sense to scare anyone, not to present doom or anything. It was to say, but actually this is going to change and it's going to become potentially really, really crazy, really, really quickly. So focus your time and energy on what's absolutely most important to you. If you don't know what's important, start asking today. What is the most important thing in my life? What is the most important thing I want to put my time and my energy in? Put your time in that. Maybe it's, I just want to spend time with my kids and my dog and my family. And that's the most important thing in my life. Then do it. I mean, don't wait for next year to do that. Do it right now because the way this reset is seemingly structured, we don't know how long we've got to do anything. So find out what's most important to you. Put your time and effort into that then no matter what happens, even if nothing happens and the whole thing becomes a magic wonderland, you're not going to be disappointed and say, I wish I had put my time and effort into this when I had the chance. You did. So put your time and effort into what's important to you. And no matter what happens from that, you'll be glad you did down the road. Mm. <laughs> I love it. Great way to bring it home. What a pro. It's like you've done this before. But damn. Well, Howdy, this was a whirlwind of fun stuff to think about. The wisdom of the ancients and the indigenous, the oddities and the timeline, the world's fairs, and the trap of all traps, the reincarnation cycle. Really had a good time with you today. Give the people your links and the info they need to dig in deeper if they want more than the taste they got today. Thanks, Greg. I've been actually looking forward to this for a long time. I've really liked the work you do. I like how prepared you are for the interviews how smooth you make the interviews happen. So thank you again for having me on, on as your guest today. And if people are interested, you can look for information on my books at the very terribly named, I can't believe I named my website this, but it's egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com. It's probably easier to just Google search my name and get to it that way. You can also see most of the books on Amazon. Exit the Cave is just out. It's new. It's only about three weeks out. It's only as a PDF ebook at this time. It's by donation, actually, minimum $5, which I think is great for a 500 or a 200-page, 15-chapter book of information. We're hoping to have it out soon as a print book, maybe October, and an audio book later in uh, November. But you can go to the website and check out the information on that book. The other books you can find on Amazon or your local bookseller. And you can go to YouTube. To, I'm still there for now, Howdy McCoskey Talks. 
And there's, I think, 300 videos there that you can look through and find a subject that's interesting to you. My email can be found through both that YouTube and my own site. If you have something to share or you have a question to ask, or I do get a lot of really useful information that comes to me from people dropping an email. So you're more than welcome to do that. And yeah, thanks again for sharing your time and listening along with our conversation that we've had. I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, man, me too. Thank you for the kind words. And I appreciate you going closer to almost three hours with me. Uh, you are the man. I'm glad you found a passion in life before the depression took you over the edge. Not everyone is so lucky, but you really have forged your own path and it's impressive. And this was quite enjoyable. Keep up the great work and take care. Thanks, Greg. All the best. Sweet big cathedral energy, Batman. I am a fan of this one. Clocking in at well over two hours. Can you believe it? Howdy's a fun guy exploring all sorts of slices of the mysterious pie of life. Pulled himself out of a deep depression and went balls to the wall. I think you know by now that one of my favorite avenues for exploring the idea of a reset or a radically different past that has been glossed over and forgotten is the World's Fairs. It's a subject that butts right up against Tesla and the secret tech stuff, the size and scope of these events at a time when getting around the planet wasn't at all easy. And looking at all those details that Howdy has extracted, I mean, it's just a big fucking wow from me. And I know that ended up being deep second hour stuff, though it would have been the first thing I asked him about, but my rule of thumb is always to try to get a person's latest work into the first hour. It just feels like that is what I should do. And that material is interesting as well, no doubt. And when we're talking simulation type stuff, the idea of NPCs is also fascinating. It's basically just a couple degrees over from reptilians, which is a couple degrees over from psychopaths. It also jives with the hidden hand material, which was all about the elite reincarnating into the same families to maintain that level of control over the game. But it all speaks to that idea that some people are not like you and me. Are they a different kind of creature? Are they from a different planet? Are they agents of a conscious reality? Are they bosses in the video game life to be conquered? I guess that's yet to be determined, but something is certainly off with these people. And who knows when a random character in the game sends you on a trajectory that seems subtle but ends up being quite profound. It's worth thinking about. So I love the material. I love his personal story. I think it's a great message to say that if you've had enough, if you're at your wit's end, if you're at the end of your rope, don't just snuff out your own fire. Stoke it and burn off all the pain, the numbness, the boredom, and the unfulfilled dreams. Just go harder than you ever thought possible and see where you end up when you have nowhere to go but on that adventure. And Howdy is going to have to come back sometime because we left a lot on the table. He's gone super deep on Dark City. He did a big 12-part series on Renla Chateau, the Cathars, and the Knights Templar. Getting into the idea that Paris could be the New Testament Jerusalem. It's odd, but I like his creativity and his willingness to go deep into uncharted waters. Plus the life experiences, spending time with the shamans and medicine men firsthand. I'm a fan. 
I did record this one several weeks back though, so when we ended with him talking about us having five or six good weeks left, that's basically down to two or three now. And we all see the direction things are going, but sometimes I think these arcs seem immediate when really they're much longer than we think. I can't remember if Ice Age Farmer was 2020 or 2021, but he definitely made it seem like we would all be starving and dead by now because there'd be no food anywhere. I also heard a clip the other day from 1997 where David Icke said the plan was to create a virus in a lab, let it out, and then create a global vaccination campaign to cull the population and gain access to the human operating system. He also said they would change elder care to kill off the elderly. In 1997, I was in the seventh grade. So was he wrong or was he extremely right? It sounds to me like a lot of people would have said he was crazy as he walked the long road to being right. So even with the World Economic Forum Sustainable Development Goals stuff, we are throwing out warnings that might not be obvious for five to eight years. And people have a super short memory, so we got to consider how long these plans are sometimes. But I still love this one. I don't share Howdy's negative outlook on reality itself as a structure. But as I said, I'm in the beginning of a story, the middle really. And I'm well aware that nobody gets out alive, loss will be baked in, but my first 38 years have been pretty damn enjoyable, and the negative pressures I felt from the system led me to do this, and this has worked out. And look, I'm not naive to the possibilities, but so far so good. Though I understand why he feels how he feels based on his experience so far, and ask me in another 10 years and I might be more on his page, who knows. And as good as the first half was, you know we got a second half for members. You can get a worthless blue checkmark for 8 bucks a month, or you can get 5 high-octane episodes of THC. And it all starts with a free 7-day trial that you could get right now. TheHigherSideChats.com, or click the top link right there in the show notes of whatever podcast app you're on. In the second hour today, we talked about recapitulation practices and how important they are, a deep dive on Howdy's work on deconstructing the World's Fairs and international expositions, the multi-layer motivation for throwing the fairs, the strange history of the architects of these World Fairs, some of Howdy's exploration stories and his call to THC listeners, insights from those medicine men, a deep dive into the Buffalo World's Fair and its radical brutality, and we talked about the Temple of Music and the assassination of President McKinley. Very diverse and compelling range of topics, banger of an episode. In higher side news, we're going to pop over to that meetup calendar and see what's what. Well, we are done with the first week of November, though I am looking at an event today that... I can barely pronounce, but it's in Ontario, in Utterson, Canada, at the Raymond Community Hall. It says, join me and the local seniors for a rousing Euchre tournament. Entry fee, $2, coffee included, cash prizes for the top three winners. I have to look at what Euchre even is. I just Googled how to pronounce it, but I do like it, and I do like gambling and games that can win people money. I wish I had had more time to promote it, but if you're in 
Ontario, Canada, and you want to play Euchre, there's a tournament happening. Then on the 11th, we got the Topeka, Kansas meetup at the Topeka Performing Arts Center. On the 12th, we got an Asheville, North Carolina meetup. On November 13th, a Utah meetup in Sandy, Utah at the Athena Beans Bistro. November 16th, getting together in Seattle, Washington again. November 18th, going to the Durango, Colorado Smiley Cafe. And we got West Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and Frederick, Maryland closing out November. Now, I hope more things get added. Always give me the two-week lead time so I can promote the event, let people know so they don't miss it. But that is a full calendar, and I like to see it. People meeting people. That's life, right? So, really good show. I don't have much else to say. Big thanks to today's guest. Check out his books and his videos. Tell him you liked the interview if you'd be so kind. Take care out there. Remember what's important. Life is only getting crazier, and the big narratives are only trying harder and harder to hook you in and dominate your mindset. That said, I've done my part. Your move, simulation concealers, timeline troublemakers, and Plato's cave captives. Your fucking The truth has been hidden from me. Didn't believe it myself. Got lizard people on top of the world. And I wish it was somebody else. TV and obey Take some more pills when you're blue Or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in Together we will make it through
And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check, mail to the P.O. Box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.